Welcome to the OMR Podcast, where we go inside the minds of the biggest names in digital and tech. In today's episode, OMR founder Philip Westermeyer is joined by Josh Luber, founder of online sneaker and streetwear marketplace StockX. The pair discuss the genesis of StockX, the company's daily order volume, the importance of verification, and what sets the StockX model apart from eBay. All of that and more right now in the OMR podcast. Okay, welcome to the podcast, the founder of StockX, Josh Luba. Hi, Josh. Hello, how are you? Um, I'm good. I'm, I'm glad we, we finally like, came together on the podcast, at least. Um, uh, like To all the listeners that don't know exactly what StockX is, give us a brief summary of what StockX does. Sure. Um, so StockX today is the largest marketplace in the world for sneakers and for streetwear and for collectibles um, and uh, solely expanding into other categories like watches, handbags and, and trading cards. But um, you can think of us kind of as an evolution of eBay. We're a marketplace. We connect buyers and sellers. Um, but the way that we do that and the reason why it's been so successful is that we've built this marketplace in the same way that the world's stock markets work. So it's literally what we call a stock market of things. Uh, it's a consumer goods marketplace, but it functions like a stock market where you can have real pricing and real transparency into a market that otherwise didn't have it. Uh, there's a lot of nuance and data to that to the stock market and happy to go into as much as you want. But at the core of it, it's this idea of knowing what a fair market price is at any given time in the same way that you know, in the actual stock market. You know that a, a share of, of stock for for Nike stock, you know, is worth whatever it is trading for. So it's uh, it's been a, a pretty fun ride, but um, we're about five years into this, and I feel like we're just getting started. And why is that model better, or like you know, more likely to to work out than the eBay model is or was? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, thank you for for asking that. A, a lot of people uh, sort of glance right over that um, because it truly is about the model um you know look we're the largest marketplace for sneakers and and i've collected sneakers since i was eight and i love sneakers um and but we happen to have started in sneakers it's really about this unique model and um you know there's a lot of reasons of why uh it's better but i'll give you the the the, the easiest example because you asked sort of as a comparison to ebay if you go to ebay and you search for a pair of sneakers that you want uh you will get a thousand listings two thousand listings of all these people selling that and some will have pictures and some will have descriptions and they'll be all different prices. And then it's up to you to figure out which one do you want to buy, which one's real, which one's the fair price. Why is one guy, you know, 600, one guy, 800, where are they shipping from all the different things for you to figure out. But if you go to the New York stock exchange and you want to buy a share of Nike stock, there's not a thousand people saying, Hey, buy my Nike stock, buy my Nike stock. Mine comes with a picture. Mine comes with a receipt. You know, mine is shipped from Germany. Mine is shipped from Australia. No, like there's one ticker symbol for Nike and there's one market price and every bid and every ask and everything happens at that one place and buy a share of Nike stock and then go home. And your friend says, Oh, I, I, I actually got a, a share of my share of Nike stock cheaper on mm -hmm. Amazon. Okay. Like that mm -hmm. doesn't happen, right? There's, there's one marketplace. And so that level of transparency and of bringing everything into one place. So there's one product page for every pair of sneakers and every product on StockX and everything happens there. And so that alone is the, the structural difference that makes 
everything easier, more transparent, and it, everything emanates from that. And I think like looking at your model, one major difference to eBay is also that you authenticate the products. I mean, they, they don't, you know, just the platform, but they, you also receive the products. You look at them, you say, okay, they are true. They are like the true, that, that's an original product. And then you send it to whoever the buyer is. Right. So um, there's a lot of value in that. There's a lot of value that we physically authenticate every single product that's sold. What happens is after the sale happens, the seller sends it to to us at one of our uh, six authentication centers around the world, two of which actually are, are in Europe. And we're opening up uh, a couple more later this year. But we make sure not only that the shoe is real, but it's the right size, the right condition. It is what it's supposed to be. And we check and then we send it to the buyer. There's a lot of value in that. And if you're a 14-year-old a kid, you know, spending, you know, a lot of money on a, a pair of Yeezys, to know that you're never going to get a fake pair of Yeezys is a tremendous value. But for us, that's just the beginning of the value. Because if you go back to the stock market model, if you thought for a second that the the asset you're buying, whether it's a share of stock or a sneakers, if you thought that it was that it might be fake, if you thought that you might not get what you're supposed to get, it would change your whole perception of value. It would change what you're willing to pay for it. It would change, you know, what you're willing to, to bid for it. And by the way, if you're a seller and you thought you might get a fake scam chargeback of someone saying they sent you a fake, it would change, you know, how you're willing to sell. And so for us, like it facilitates the larger model and everything that comes with it. So it's really a, a, a double-edged, uh, you know, sort of really two values is you have that initial value of knowing that it's real. And the secondary and, and longer value of facilitating the, the stock market model. Okay. Be before we talk about the current business, take us back to how it all started. I mean, the company now is valued at, I mean, at least that's what the speculation says. It's a, uh, it's unicorn. It's more than a billion dollars in, in, in valuation, the past funding round. Um, so it's, it's, it's grown quite a bit. I think you have how many employees now? I think we're like uh, right around 900. 900 employees, um, so yeah. operating globally. But I mean, it, it started like, you know, out of a unusual situation. I mean, you're a sneakerhead, a sneaker geek, but I mean, it, it wasn't like exactly that that made you do this. How, how did it all start? Yeah, so, um, you know, as I mentioned, I've, I've collected sneakers all my life and, and I've been a, a startup. So you guy. own a thousand, right? I mean, I saw this YouTube video at, at Heisen Nobody where you have like a thousand sneakers in your closet. Uh, I have, uh, I think I have about 400, which, <laughs> okay. uh, which by the way, feels like a thousand if you're sitting in my, my sneaker room, because they're all laid out in, in, on shelves. But, and by the way, 400 sounds like a lot, but there are people that have literally thousands. So <laughs> in the pantheon of big sneaker collections, you know, mine doesn't even register. <laughs> okay. Um, but, but I have collected, you know, I'm 42 years old and, um, and I have uh, the same story as every other 42 year old sneakerhead. I, I grew up playing basketball and Michael Jordan played. I always wanted Air Jordans. My mom would never buy me Air Jordans. As soon as I got some money, I bought Air Jordans. Like we all have a very similar story of how we became super passionate in this space. And so as I grew and, and as I, you know, entered the workforce, you know, I'm a startup guy, I'm an entrepreneur and I've started and run three other startups before StockX. Uh, but none of them had anything to do with sneakers, almost intentionally so, almost like intentionally separating business and pleasure in my life. And so um, it wasn't until the fourth startup when I finally merged those two, my personal passions with uh, startup world, that it became the most successful. And, you know, the short story of, of what is a pretty crazy and long story is that um, I was uh, working a corporate job in between startups. And I, I was working at IBM and I was a strategy consultant for IBM. And I was doing a lot of data work, as any other consultant might do. 
And, um, and this was like 2011, 2012. And, you know, I started thinking, man, I wonder if I could get a hold of some sneaker data just to play with, just to play with my own amusement, just to kind of see what I could do with it. And so I basically built a price guide for sneakers um, on the side while I was working at IBM sort of nights and weekends. Um, and kind of like, you know, the same way that the stock market <clears throat> becomes a price guide for, for shares of stock. So I built this price guide that was scraping eBay. And the idea was that if you understood the value of any asset, then you could build a marketplace on top of it that functions the way asset markets do, the way a stock market does. And so I had this idea to take this price guide and turn it into a marketplace. And I talked to everybody in the sneaker industry, Nike, eBay, Foot Locker, Complex, you name it. And I talked to everybody I could, and, um, and there wasn't, wasn't really a good fit for who to work with. And, um, and I happened to meet a guy named Dan Gilbert, who Who's is not, the owner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's, he's not just everybody. I mean, he's like a, a billionaire, <laughs> right, right? I mean, he's a yeah, like famous he guy in the US. He is. He's the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers in, in the NBA, which is the team that LeBron James used to play for. Mm -hmm. uh, also, uh, a company called Quicken Loans, which is the largest uh, mortgage lender, residential mortgage lender in the United States, and, and a bunch of other companies. And so um, the short version is Dan and I had the exact same idea independently, which was to build a marketplace, to build a, a evolution of eBay, um, but leveraging how the stock market works. And Uh, in full transparency, you know, he was not a, a sneaker guy at all. In fact, it's been over four years and I literally can't get him to wear sneakers. <laughs> But he saw the, the value in the model and, and gets back to the first thing we were talking about. He saw the value in a stock market of things model and then was exposed to sneakers through his sons who were teenagers at the time. And, uh, and basically, uh, we were able to come together and, and build this company together. And so we started working together in, uh, in the summer of 2015. I mean, so, so you had this, 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 this price quote list, basically. I mean, this, this, this yeah. you know, place where you could look up the sneaker prices. And then <clears throat> now you're turning this into a marketplace. This is a very critical moment. I mean, building a marketplace is, is, is the hardest thing that you can do as an entrepreneur. I mean, you have to have, you know, demand and supply at the same time, the exact second somebody is looking at it. It's, it's, you make it sound so easy, but I mean, even with Dan Gilbert, uh, being Being part of the business, how did you like get this market started? How did you get liquidity on, on both ends? Yeah, it's it's a really good point that you make. I mean, uh, marketplaces are the the hardest you know business in in the history of the internet uh, for sure. Um, you know, because of the 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 you know chicken and the egg of of you know having to build supply and demand at the same time. Um, but You know, and, and by the way, neither of us had marketplace experience, you know, Dan or myself or our third co-founder, Greg Schwartz, um, who was running the company day to day with me. But we're so fortunate that the products that we were selling and the products that we sell today, they're the most highly coveted products in the world. Nike, Supreme, Louis Vuitton, Rolex, you know, um, we don't have to convince anybody to buy the products that we sell. StockX really is about access. And so, um, so that we had a, a huge advantage. And, and secondly, the model itself, which we've talked about, we didn't make that up. All we did was copy how the stock market works, which has been the most efficient form of commerce for, you know, 150 years. So the hypothesis that this would be a better way to buy or sell anything and then to choose the most highly coveted products in the world, 
I almost feel like we we had it easy compared to to people that are out there building marketplaces from scratch and trying to sell a new product and and trying to go at it in the antiquated marketplace models like eBay or or, or Amazon. But how so did how, had a, how did the people like yeah. find you? I mean, if you, if I was sitting there somewhere in LA or in New York and I had sneakers to sell or like a Rolex to sell, how would I notice that I could do that on StockX? Yeah, well. So two parts. One, um, you know, at the time when we launched in, in uh, we launched in February of 2016, the sneaker community and the people that were buying and selling these products um, was pretty tight knit. Um, and it would, it's pretty easy. And, and everybody was always looking for sneakers and there was just a lack of access to them. So if you were interested in this, you were always looking for, for what's out there. So, so we had an advantage there, but second, And, you know, we won't go through all, all the detail. I mean, we had and still have an unbelievably, you know, robust and, and detailed marketing plan. We every single channel that you could imagine, you know, content, social, influencer, paid SEO, uh, you know, I think everything short of maybe, you know, billboards. I mean, you know, we, we even created, um, you know, video uh, commercials and um, so, you know, we had a, uh, you know, a pretty robust marketing plan. You know, I, I should say that. My third co-founder, our third co-founder, Greg Schwartz, who, um, you know, he and I uh, basically co-ran the company for uh, for most of its existence. Um, you know, I'm the one usually out giving uh, interviews, but, you know, he brought all the expertise in terms of performance marketing and understanding, you know, how to how to how to scale, you know, uh, Google keywords and and all the, the parts of, of uh, that you have to have with it. It's one thing to have the brand side of it. And, you know, to sell these amazing products and to bring in, you know, these celebrity investors and the other things that we did, which absolutely helped. But like you have to have the backbone of, of amazing SEO and amazing digital marketing to, to go with it. And you could actually afford to spend quite a lot on a new customer because you have, I mean, I, 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 I learned like preparing for this podcast that you have like a 10, around the 10% margin on the product that you sell. So if somebody like buys a shoe from you at, let's say 300 um, dollars, you take 30% um, commission. Um, uh, you, sorry, 10%, which makes $30 commission. So so you can basically spend like, I don't know, $29 on acquiring this new customer. Is that correct? The the numbers are are directionally right. Um, but the 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 logic of, of how you look at the the lifetime value of a customer versus the cost of acquisition is exactly right. I mean that that is that is exactly how um, digital marketing works in uh, you know in in the internet really uh, to understand not only is it the margin uh, for that specific trade, but what do we think the lifetime value of that customer is? How many purchases do we think that they'll make in in whatever period of time? And then how much does it cost us to acquire that customer and to be able to look at across all different channels, not just, you know, uh, you know, not just Google, um, uh, but also, um, you know, if we're going to put uh, paid Facebook ads or if we're going to uh, I mean, if we were going to do a, a TV commercial or whatever it is, but to go into that. So that, you know, um, what we call CAC or customer acquisition cost versus the LTV or long term value like that's your your core sort of digital marketing formula. But it, it sounds like it's much harder to acquire the seller than the buyer. I mean, this buyer, I just did the math on this, but I mean, um, give me some math on the, on the, on the, on the seller. Is that like, how much do you need to like acquire a new seller? Well, you just hit on what's, what's a really uh, complicated problem in marketplaces, which is it's super easy if I'm a brand 
and I have a website and I sell stuff on that website and, and all I'm trying to do is just acquire the buyer. Um, but now we have to acquire both the buyer and the seller. And, you know, there's the, the lifetime value of a buyer is going to look way different than the lifetime value mm. of a seller. Mm. Right. Um, you know, we have in like any business, there's a, there's an 80, 20, you know, where, where, you know, some large percentage of the power buyers make up majority of transaction and same thing on the sell side. Um, but you know, your average seller might sell, say, I don't know, I'm, I'm making this up. These aren't numbers, but you know, four pairs of shoes a month and your average buyer might buy one pair of shoes a month. So all of this goes into trying to figure out, you know, where to market and how, and by the way, there's completely different marketing strategies, uh, in for buyers or sellers in some cases. And then in some cases it's the same, you know, the, the brand work that we do, um, is, you know, is really just targeted towards overall awareness and the value of, of partnerships. When we do, we did a, a sneaker release, we, we should talk more about um, with New Balance, where New Balance released a pair of shoes on StockX, um, you know, in back in May. And that's something that drives awareness across the whole community. Mm. Um, but we're also in, in industries, uh, in verticals, sneakers, streetwear, watches, but also like trading cards, even more so where everybody is potentially a buyer and a seller. Now, not everybody is a power buyer or seller, but you know, we mentioned I have about 400 pairs of shoes. I am primarily a buyer, but every now and then I'll, I'll sell a pair, a, a pair I bought that, that I decided I didn't want, or, um, you know, so, or, or something that I bought and then, uh, you know, maybe I tried it on and, and I didn't like the way it fit or, or whatever it is. I buy way more than I sell, but I also sell some as well. So it's a complicated way then on the back end for us to be able to track long-term value and, and customer acquisition costs, but it's a necessary thing that we have to do. And you know, now we have a, a, a fully built out marketing team with a phenomenal CMO to be able to put that sort of rigor into our digital marketing and continue to scale the business. How much of the, of the products that you sell are like from random people and how many are percentage-wise, are now coming from companies like the New Balance that you mentioned or like Nike basically dropping stuff on StockX. How, how is that now? Yeah, so the, the brand direct stuff is still tiny, tiny, tiny. Okay. I mean, it, it's got to be, you know, like 1%. Um, oh, okay. Okay. But but I think it's the future of the whole business. I actually think to be somewhat hyperbolic, I think it's the future of all e-commerce. Um, you know, the, the marketplace is today primarily a secondary marketplace, right? We connect buyers and sellers. But um, you know, the, the customer doesn't care where the product comes from. The customer just wants the product. And, you know, now StockX is, um, you know, I don't know what the latest stats are specifically, but, you know, we have more web traffic than basically, you know, everyone in the sneaker industry, including, you know, Foot Locker and, and Finish Line and every other, you know, retail marketing channel. So does it make sense for Nike to release products entirely through Foot Locker and JD Sports? Or should they also release products, you know, through StockX where we have, you know, more traffic and we have, you know, more relevant customers for them? And so that is the sort of evolution of what's going on in the industry. And uh, the notion between primary market and secondary market will at some point just completely blur together and there won't even be a distinction anymore. So maybe at some point the, the secondary market is, is basically content for the primary market where you actually make the money because you have much more supply. Yeah, that, that's actually an interesting way to look at it as well. I mean, certainly there's, there's more initial supply. There, there's more supply per product on the primary market. 
but there's infinitely more products on the secondary market, right? So if you were to go into JD Sports or Foot Locker, there may be 300, 400, maybe 500 pairs of sneakers that, that are at that store on the wall that you could buy if you wanted to. But there's 35,000 different sneakers on StockX, <laughs> right? And, you know, and, and that's just a function of, of the value of marketplaces and the internet and, and the long tail of it. So what, what's, the best consumer, sneaker? What, what's the best selling sneaker on, on StockX? What, what, what sneaker did you sell the most? It, it, it depends on whatever the latest release is, right? So whatever the latest big Jordan or Yeezy release is going to be the, the biggest selling shoe at, at any given time. So <clears throat> we, I, I, frankly, I, I'm not even sure uh, what, the, what the last one, it might have been the, the Jordan 5, the, the new purple Jordan 5 that, that just came out. But, you know, because our business continues to grow and because more and more people come into it, like there, there is no such thing as sort of historical sneakers like that one sold the most. But at a model level, right, it's Jordan 1, Jordan 11, uh, Yeezy 350. Like those are the ones that when they come out, you know, you're just selling, you know, millions and millions. So probably the Jordan 1 in terms of model is probably the one that, that sold the most and, and will always sell the most. How many transactions do you, and do, you do like in, in a year or in a, in a month? Oh, I mean, you know, we, we do we do tens of thousands a day. So tens of yeah. thousands of transactions a day. Yeah. So it's a lot. Wow. Okay. Okay. Wow. And that's all like uh, seriously like products coming in from random people and then being shipped away to random people. Yeah. Although it's 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 worthwhile to note though that you know the the power sellers and power buyers on StockX they're all some form of a small business. Um, and so, you know, and it, it's not just, you know, ones and twos. Um, now what that business looks like, you know, is that that business isn't Nike, right? But, you know, it's a guy that has a sneaker store in, I'm making this up, I don't know, in, in Phoenix or in Dublin or, or in, you know, wherever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. That has a sneaker store that, um, will buy some shoes on StockX and sell at the store but also may uh, buy shoes that, that somebody walks in and wants to sell. And then he might turn around and sell some on StockX too. So, you know, he's got a sneaker store, but he also buys and sells online, mm -hmm. um, you know, or just might be a, a, a reseller who, who spends their, their time trying to, to sleep outside of sneaker stores and, and figure out how to acquire that and then sell it on StockX. Yeah, but it's, that's the, like the relevant percentage of your, of your people is like actually the people that like, like wait in line for days and, and stand in line for days and camp out to actually like, you know, be there when a, when a sneaker drops? So, so yeah, so I mean, it, to be fair, there's not as many of those camp outs anymore, and particularly in a, you know, in a sort of post-COVID world. Um, now there's none of them, but you know, a lot of those, uh, releases have been moved to, to online over the years, but the ones that still existed, you can see people literally checking StockX on their phone while they're waiting in line <laughs> okay. to figure out, you know, what profit they're going to make or what, what size has the biggest profit. Like, um, you know, particularly if you're limited, if you can only buy one, a lot of times they'll see, oh, look, you know, size four or size five or six, usually a lot of the small sizes because there's lo less supply, are selling for more. So maybe if they're buying it just to resell, they'll go buy a size five as opposed to even their own size because they know they're just trying to resell. And, and so that's kind of the value of sort of the real-time data, i.e. the stock market aspect of StockX, to be able to see real-time what shoes are selling for and very easily understand that to be able to make those buy and sell decisions. Okay. Um, when does this all start? I mean, when I mean, I'm I'm the same age uh, as you are. Uh, when we were kids, that whole thing didn't exist. I mean, there was no 
uh, buy and sell with sneakers and you wore them and then you threw them away and like, some were nicer, but th this whole business wasn't there. When did this, and how, and what made this business exist? Well, when we were kids, the internet didn't exist. Yeah. And um, the, the sneaker market did, but just in much different form. So this dates all the way back to 1985 and, and the first Air Jordans, right? That was the first time there was really a significant imbalance in supply and demand, that there were way more people that wanted something they could get them. Therefore, it's worth more money. People can can resell them. and uh, But we just obviously didn't have the internet. So, you know, the first big change came in 99, 2000, eBay, the internet, and, uh, and it really helped, uh, you know, propel that along. But the second big change came in 2010, 2011, 2012 uh, with social media, but really on the back of Instagram as now you're just bringing more and more people into, I mean, all sneakerheads ever wanted to do is to show off the shoes they have and see what everyone else has. And so now Instagram was doing that at scale for the whole world. So you had more and more people coming in. And then the third really big wave was, you know, frankly, it was StockX in 2016 that then made it easy to get that product. So like you almost have like, you know, it was like 85 is like the product, you know, 99 is the internet, uh, 2011 is the people, And 2016 with StockX is the marketplace. And now you have all the components to be able to have, you know, what we have today. Explain a little how influencer and Instagram like really accelerates this whole thing. I mean, you put out a report on your website about the sneaker market. And there's, a, there's an example of, a, of, a, of, I think, a Nike sneaker that um, one of the, I think, Kardashians wore on Instagram. And then all of a sudden, this whole shoe, the Ferris Bueller, shoe, Nike, something, all of a sudden exploded. Can you like explain that a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, StockX, the sneaker market, the stock market itself, all of it, it's just supply and demand. I mean, it is, this is Econ 101. It is the most basic and, and true version of supply and demand. And we, in all of the products that we sell, there's a fixed supply. And so when demand changes, prices will skyrocket. And so The Kardashians, like anyone, like any any people in, in that position, drive a lot of demand. If Kylie wears something, people want it. And there's limited supply. Again, StockX is about access, and it's about quickly understanding the value of that product. So a lot of people go there, they try to buy it, and it increases the price. I mean, it, it's it's as simple as that, and it's as true as that. And um, and so that's why you know influencer marketing is uh, is a big deal. That's why Instagram has always been important in this um, because it, it helps drive demand. We see, by the way, um, even bigger spikes in our business, even bigger impacts to the global sneaker market when some of the Chinese celebrities wear it. So you know, if Chris Wu wears a certain pair of shoes, uh, you know, in uh, in China, um, all of a sudden that'll become our, our highest selling shoe, you know, for days. Um, and that's just, you know, Chinese people looking all over the world to try to get this because they're so influential and so powerful in terms of driving demand. And, and, and how many pairs can they move or how much can they drive the price up? What's the, what's the most expensive shoe that was ever sold uh, on your platform? Well, those two questions are, aren't, um, aren't the same. Uh, uh, but the most expensive shoe, I think, is still the Nike Mag, uh, which is a shoe that um, it was basically a recreation of the shoe that was worn in Back to the Future 2. Um, I don't know if you yeah. remember that yeah. when, uh, when, when Marty puts his, his foot in the shoe <laughs> and then auto laces around his foot. Um, and so, um, but there were only 87 pairs of that version, the auto lacing pair uh, created. 
And so, you know, supply is, is, you know, almost non-existent because of the nostalgia back to the future and everything else, you know, everybody wanted that. So one of those sold for $50,000 US, by the way, one of them sold at an auction at a live auction um, for over a hundred thousand dollars. So you just get to a, a stratosphere where the, again, the difference in supply and demand is so great. Now, obviously that that's not a function of, of, you know, the Kardashians or influencers, but you know, a lot of the Nike SB, the Nike skateboarding shoes that have become have had a big a resurgence. Um, a lot of it can can clearly be seen back to Travis Scott wearing a lot of, of Nike skateboarding shoes. Um, and then, you know, Kylie, who's married to Travis Scott, um, to be, you know, also wearing them as well. So when you have, you know, one of the the probably two or three biggest musical artists in the world. Um, and one of the biggest uh, influencers uh, in the world, both wearing the same type of shoes, um, it's going to cause those prices to to really skyrocket. But there's kind of a natural ceiling on some of that stuff. Um, very rarely are you going to see, you know, a pair of of sneakers that you that buy in, that that trade a lot on StockX for more than three, four thousand dollars, something like that. Because once you get to that point, there's just you can just buy a whole lot of other shoes for $3,000. And so it's not that people don't want it, but you're like, now you start to compare it against what other shoes you can buy. Okay. Okay. Um, um, <laughs> that's just crazy. Like those numbers. Mm -hmm. um, talk a little bit about, about um, your other investors. I mean, that's, you just touched on that briefly. I mean, you have Dan Gilbert um, in your cap table as a co-founder even, but then you have like the who is who of, Celebrities. I mean, there's Mark Warburg, there's Eminem, um, I think uh, Steve Aoki, um, who else? Kylie, uh, Kylie Kloss. They're all like invested in your company. How did you do that? Honestly, it was it was kind of by accident. Um, <laughs> Funny accident. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we never intended to go out and and get the most famous people in the world involved. It happened really, really organically in the beginning. Uh, and it happened with Em and, and with Mark. Both it, it happened uh, differently, but early on. So really early on, um, uh, we were in a meeting with Dan. Uh, we used to sit, you know, there were five of us. We used to sit right outside of his office, and and he was very actively involved in, in the beginning of the company. And um, and it just randomly came up in a meeting that Mark Wahlberg wears a lot of Air Jordans. And Dan says, "Oh, well, I know Mark." And an hour later, I'm on an email chain with Dan and Mark. And two days later, I'm in California at Mark's house going through a sneaker collection with them. And, um, you know, for and he was, you know, unbelievably gracious and, and had, you know, had known Dan for a while. And, um, you know, the greatest value that we could give someone with like Mark was to let him invest. Um, and so we uh, created a round to basically let Mark and a couple other people invest because of the relationship. Um, but also because they genuinely understood what we were doing, that it wasn't just about sneakers, but it was about the bigger idea. Um, and then it, it kind of just built from there as, as other people saw. And we were fortunate to have a lot of people that were interested, but to be able to create relationships that one, people understood the bigger idea. Um, they were in it for the right reason. Um, and then we felt that they were like truly interested in helping. And so they don't have any you know, contractual obligations to help us, but, um, but they do when, when it's right, when it's the right time. I mean, You know, Steve, for example, Steve Aoki, who you mentioned, um, you know, he he invited us to his house and he's like, let's film an episode, uh, you know, for, for your web show. And, you know, we'll go and look at our, my sneaker collection and all this. I mean, that was his idea. Um, and there's this great episode and, you know, where I get to go to his house and, and we did a whole, you know, sort of tour of his house and tour of his sneaker closet and sat there with him talking about all of the shoes. 
Um, and, you know, again, that was, that was his idea and there was no money exchange for that. That was just um, what, what he wanted to do because uh, he wanted to be involved. So it's, uh, it's been super fortunate for us to be able to have those kind of relationships. And, and how, how did Eminem happen? So, you know, M's obviously from Detroit. And, um, and so early you're based on... In the, you're based in Detroit as well, right? I mean, so the right, company... Right, right. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, so we're based in Detroit. And, and Dan um, has, uh, you know, has almost single-handedly um, helped to revitalize the city of Detroit over the past 10 years. And, you know, he's obviously made a lot of money in business, but his personal mission is, is to help revitalize the city of Detroit. And, um, you know, and, and Eminem's from Detroit. And so early on, and we, and like I said, we used to sit right outside of his office. And so early on, Eminem's manager, Paul Rosenberg, was in our office talking to some of Dan's people about Detroit-related activities. And, um, and someone said, oh, well, you know, he's like, you know, Josh, you should show Paul what we're working on. And I was like, okay. And I showed him what we're working on. And he's like, he's like, oh, we'd love to get involved in this. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, and, and, and that was it. I mean, really. And, uh, and it's interesting because, you know, even though obviously Eminem is Eminem and, and, you know, together they've helped us in a lot of ways. Um, you know, Paul and I, he's become uh, probably one of my closest friends through this because he's been there since the very beginning. I mean, you know, Paul and Em invested before we'd even launched. So we didn't even have a business, let alone where we are today. Um, so it's been great to have those guys that have, have supported us for, for so long. Okay. And then after those guys came on board, then like a little while later, you finally like let on the um, Silicon Valley venture capital people. <laughs> yeah. I like how you phrase that. To, to <laughs> yeah. 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 But I mean, it sounds like, I mean, they, they, they must have convinced you. It's not, I mean, it sounds like a situation where you were not like in a situation where you had to like convince them, but how was that? I mean, it sounded like you had a good start already and, and then, you know, could yeah, pick, your, that, pick your investors. That's fair. Um, I mean, look, you always have to convince them and, and that, 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 but, um, but for sure it's a way different experience um, starting a company with a, a billionaire as a co-founder. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've started to run three other companies um, and never had that luxury. never had the, the, the luxury of having a company that was this, um, that had this much success and, and was, was as good. But, um, and so because of that, and because Dan, you know, funded the, the beginning of the company, um, we know we didn't need to go to outside capital if we, if we didn't have to. Um, and so that's a nice position to be in. And then as Dan had led the first round and we had the second round that was small, you know, with a lot of big names and small checks, um, when we decided that we did want to raise money, that we did want to step on the gas and, and, uh, and continue growing it, well, then it actually becomes, um, you know, very valuable to have other people around the table um, to help grow the company. And at that point, um, the Silicon Valley investors, you know, i.e. Uh, Google Ventures and, and, um, uh, and Battery Ventures, who were the, the two people that co-led that first, that first outside round, um, we just felt they could bring a lot more value in ways that we didn't have at the time. And they did. I mean, I think, you know, there's a couple really pivotal moments in our history. Uh, bringing those guys on board when we did was, was one of them. Uh, and they've been phenomenal additions. They're both uh, still on our board. And um, yeah, I mean, there, there's real value in, in having professional investors on board if everyone's there for the right reason. And I mean, the, the past month really like accelerated the company, right? The Corona time really, uh, I mean, helped you basically. I mean, it sounds awkward, but it, it reads like, um, you know, during the pandemic, your business grew quite a bit. It did. Uh, and, um, and it's a weird um, thing to say, and it still feels a little bit, um, you know, I don't know, guilty uh, in a way. 
Um, but it's not just us. I mean, it, it's all of e-commerce, you know, basically doubled uh, in the last three months since um, since the quarantine and, and and clear and rightfully so. I mean, everyone's at home and buying and selling things online. But for us, it wasn't just that um, there was, you know, in the United States, there was a, a stimulus check that went out um, that helped. Um, but I, I think a, a big part of it was also the timing of um, the the quarantine everywhere, which is that uh, once it became summer and what it, you know, it started getting warmer, uh, you know, anybody that might have bought a pair of sneakers previously at a brick and mortar store. They were a customer that would that liked going into Foot Locker or liked going into JD Sports. Um, well, now the weather's break and, and you want to buy a new pair of shoes for the summer. Well, now you have to buy it online. And once you do that and you start searching, you know, because of the, the single product page I was talking about before, be, having that one place to buy it, we actually have tremendous SEO value. And a lot of times we'll rank higher than Nike or Adidas for their own shoes um, because we have this, this unique advantage. And so all these customers now are going online to buy sneakers who used to be brick and mortar. So the whole sneaker online sneaker industry grew and we're at the top of that. So we grew. And the best part about it for the long term vision is that like, once you buy something online, you never go back to buying it in, in real life, no matter what it is, whether it's clothing. Like once you cross that threshold and you become comfortable buying something online, um, that's just the nature of, of online shopping. So we're in a really fortunate position to have done that. Um, obviously, everything was a little bit shaky in the very beginning as everybody was trying to figure out what the world was going to look like. But once everybody got a little more comfortable, uh, we've been in a, in a really um, nice position and uh, it's been fun to watch the business grow. And what is the long-term vision? I mean, is it do you take the company public one like in the next couple months or so? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's um, that's certainly a, a a possibility and certainly one thing that we're planning for. Um, not not necessarily in the next month or so, but um, it's um, but it's also you know taking the company public is um, is just one step. All right, what's really more interesting is is the vision for for the company itself. You know whether we go public, whether something else happens. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, today, uh, we started talking about this a little bit earlier that you raised, is that today we're primarily a, a secondary market. Um, but I think the the vision for the company and, and what happens is we become, a, you know, an alternate primary market where we have these releases. The release with New Balance in May, when, when New Balance released these uh, products on StockX, we call it an IPO, an initial product offering. Right, where brands are releasing products into the market and letting the market set the price for it. That's the really, for lack of a sort of less cliche word, the revolutionary thing here, which is we're getting rid of the idea of retail pricing. We're getting rid of the idea that, hey, you should just come here and buy this and this should cost $100. No, like we're going to let the market set the price for it. And that becomes a really powerful mechanism to release products and sell products that are inherently worth more money than the retail price. You know, going back to the, the Nike SBs and Kylie and Travis, you know, a pair of, of the Travis Scott Air Jordan 1 retailed for, I think it was 175 US dollars and was immediately reselling for $1,500. So what kind of broken system sells a $1,500 widget for $175 <laughs> and then relies on people sleeping outside of sneaker stores in order to get it? Like that's just not fair. It's antiquated. It's it's silly. Like that product should be released at market price, and you let the market set the price for it. And that's really what we're trying to do in terms of the longer term vision, which goes all the way back to the very first thing we said, which is it's about this stock market model at every turn, and and the core of that is market pricing. 
Talk a little bit about the brands on the platform. I mean, in the sneaker business, at least, like who's your, is Nike the most, or Jordan, who's the most important partner, most important brand for you? Which partner would hurt the most if he left the platform? Well, to be fair, um, no one can leave the platform uh, because it's, it's yeah. secondary market, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but it, but the, the secondary market is, um, it's for sneakers, it's, uh, you know, it, it's Nike one, if you're combining Nike and Jordan um, and Adidas too, and then no one else even close. Um, but um, I don't know what the, the split is today between the two, between Nike and Adidas, but um, Nike's, Nike's definitely ahead. And is Adidas, Adidas doing a good job? I mean, it's a German company. So give, mm -hmm. us, give us some perspective on our German brothers here. <laughs> so in uh, 2015, um, in February 2015 is when the first Yeezy launched. Uh, at that time, Nike, including Jordan, made up 96% of the resale market. Adidas was 3%. And, you know, everyone else was 1%. So Adidas was just non-existent in this market with the sneakerhead customer at, in the resale market, the secondary market. Adidas was non-existent. First Yeezy released, and then it started a trend. And then at the peak, by uh, by mid-17, Adidas was 6-0, 6-0, of the secondary market, of the resale market, on the back of Yeezy and then uh, Pharrell on the human race line and that uh, Adidas NMD and Ultra Boost and a lot of really great products that Nike, that Adidas put out, excuse me, uh, between 2015 and 2016 and really, really dom were dominating the market and took share. It's flipped a little bit and you have Virgil Abloh and Travis and a lot of these Nike guys that have helped, you know, sort of right sides the ship and um, for, for Nike. And so now Adidas is, you know, probably about, you know, I'm going to guess probably 30, 40% of the secondary market. So, still really good, really strong, like a very clear number two. There is no number three, but right now, uh, you know, Nike definitely has the, the pole position a little bit ahead. You know, it's a really interesting thing. Uh, sorry. It's, it's a really interesting thing to, to see what will happen in the next year or so as the Yeezy line continues to become more and more mainstream, right? They're putting out more and more product every time. I mean, Kanye just signed a deal with Gap, um, you know, with the Gap. So, um, It'll be interesting to see because that product inherently is, you know, call it like retail as opposed to, to resellable shoes. Yeezy still sell out, but that may or may not happen forever. But they could use, you know, another big name over there next to Kanye and Pharrell to, to help uh, compete against Longside, against Travis and Virgil. But, I mean, that you, it sounds like it's basically those artists and designers that drive the faith of a brand. I mean, it sounds like it, all you have to do as an Adidas or Nike is find the right partner that really like pushes your, your brand. I mean, it, it's, it's not that simple, but it definitely helps, right? Particularly in this market, right? Because again, as we went back to, it's just supply and demand. And people like Kanye, Virgil, Travis, Kylie, right? Drive so much demand, so much demand that, you know, if you can put good product behind it, then you know it's really super influential and uh, and helpful to be able to to drive this because the brands understand the strategy. They're very very good if they have the product and they have the people to to make sure that they make less supply than there is demand to keep that hype going and, and to understand it and to vary it so that some shoes are super super limited that might resell for thousand dollars and others are just slightly limited so they resell for maybe 
you know, 10% more than the retail price, but they still sell out, right? That's the key is like, how do you get your product to sell out every single time? Does does Yeezy still own the, the his brand? I mean, this is this is like Yeezy. Is this like uh, is this Kanye's brand or is it Adidas brand? So there's there's two. There's um there's the Yeezy brand at Adidas, which I think is primarily uh, footwear, and then there's the Yeezy brand overall that is Kanye's brand, um, and that has other he makes other products. I think the the Gap deal I think was just a a Yeezy Kanye deal, not Adidas. I don't know how every part of the business breaks down between the two of them, but there are two different ones. Adidas is, is primary footwear and maybe some apparel, uh, and then everything else is, is the other brand. But it's probably like a billion-dollar business, right? I mean... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's the Adidas deal business alone has got to be massive because, you know, the, the volumes of sneakers they're putting out now are, are huge, but... Um, yeah, but I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't have inside info on, yeah. on that data. There's, there's one other brand that I follow recently, and, and I see a lot in my Instagram feed that seems to be trying a lot of new things. And that's New Balance. You just mentioned New Balance already. New Balance basically had the legacy of being like this, this dad shoe, like boring, not a really interesting brand, and now they seem to really change their game on those platforms in those circles. Can you like explain a little what you observe there from New Balance? Yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't mean to, to denigrate New Balance when I was talking about Nike and Adidas and, and having New Balance is, um, you know, just an all-time classic brand and, and makes, you know, some really amazing product. And, and, you know, the New Balance fans are unbelievably passionate and, uh, and New Balance collectors. Um, but historically, they really haven't played, and, and I think intentionally, um, in that, you know, space to compete in the resale market against Jordan and Yeezy and, and, and Off-White and everything else. But every now and then, um, they'll create a shoe or two or a line um, that will cross over into that. The shoe that we released on StockX, it was a collaboration with a um, with a company called No Vacancy In, and No Vacancy is a small sort of creative collective uh, that's based in LA that um, is right in the center. The guys that run that and the guys that, that started it um, are in the same vein and in the same circle with Kanye and Virgil and, and all of that. So. Um, it, you know, every now and then they'll, they'll play in it with a shoe or two, but you know, at a, at a macro business level, it's just a different customer, different, different segment of the market than Nike and Adidas. But I mean, there's, there's like new brands coming in that I noticed there's this anti-social social club and like, is, is that the newest hype there? What, what's the, what's the latest brand that surprised you that, that sort of made, made inroads into this game? So, well, now we're talking really in, into the streetwear market and, um, and all the brands there. And, you know, whereas in sneakers, you know, we can count on one hand all the major sneaker players, right? After the three we talked about, you know, Reebok, Asics, you know, uh, a couple others, and, and that's it. Um, in the streetwear world, there's an infinite number of brands. Um, you know, the most notable are brands like Off-White that have created collaborations with Nike, But any social, you know, is another one. Um, Supreme being, you know, the most mm. the most notable. Um, so there's really no shortage there. And you know, both Nike and Adidas uh, are are great at um, at choosing a lot of these brands to help and create collaborative sneakers. Um, you know, and to do that, so you have the the apparel side, which are you know usually the brands themselves, and then you have the whole uh, sneaker world as well. But um, you know, every day there's other brands starting and, and ending, but, um, you know, some of the ones at the top right now are in addition to Supreme and, and Bape, a bathing ape, um, you know, fear of God, Pierre Moss, um, you know, anti-social, um, you know, you get a lot of these brands that, um, 
that cross over between the worlds. But they come and go. And they come and go. Well, some do, but you know, others have, have you know persist. It's like any other business, but it's just there. It's way easier to create a brand um, in fashion. Uh, not that it's easy, but then than sneakers, right? Like the production for sneakers is so much harder, right? With the tooling and the time to to, to manufacture. But also there's almost like an accepted, like, you know, if, if it's not a Nike or Adidas shoe, uh, it, it like, it doesn't, it just doesn't register as opposed to when you're wearing clothes, people are very interested in uh, a brand they haven't seen before or a brand, you know, that, that, you know, because um, I think there's just more opportunity for, for interesting stuff. So. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I did a podcast with a, a German guy called Tim Stracke. He runs Chrono24. Have you ever heard of that? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Is he like a competitor of yours, basically in 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 the in the watch space? Uh, yes and no. Um, you know that's a phenomenal business, and um, they're uh, I think they're they're pretty much the leader in the the watch industry. Um, but the best way to compare about it is they're kind of like the eBay of watches, and they have a very similar model to eBay. And so um, we compete with them in that if you want to buy a watch. Um, you could buy it there, you could buy it from us, but you know, we use a very different model for, for how we sell watches as we've talked about, you know, um, a lot here. And so that's really the big distinction, but in watches, I think that there's probably a larger segment of the market that his model is applicable to than, uh, in sneakers and sneakers, our model is way more, um, valuable to more products in watches, particularly higher end watches, you probably really want to see every single picture of that watch, um, you know, because you might be spending, you know, fifty, hundred thousand dollars on a watch. Um, so, like I said, they're competitors um, and they're not. Um, but you know, either way, that's pretty cool that um, you had them on. That's a, it's a really great. It's a German call. German company. I mean, so it's I'm trying to like push my countryman here a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh huh. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, Okay, maybe like a, since you're probably like the the entrepreneur that, that I talk to with the most celebrities in the cap table, um, how is it to work with them? Are they actually like helping you? Or could you build the company without them? Or is it actually was it like really valuable to have them outside of just you know them helping you like giving you advice or like you know giving you self confidence? But did they really help with their reach? Was it necessary for your success to have all these guys as your shareholders? Uh, well, necessary is it, no, um, but. Did it help? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, probably the single most valuable um, thing looking back on it was when we launched StockX, um, we had had a, a co-branded promotion with Eminem where we gave away a pair of um, the Air Jordan 4 uh, Carhartt Eminem, which is a collaboration between Eminem The, the brand Carhartt and Air Jordan. And it was a very rare shoe. It was selling for about $30,000 at the time. So um, it was a very big you know, giveaway and Eminem helped promote it. Um, because of the size of the company at the time, i.e. we were just launching, um, the incremental value of that reach at that time was probably never greater than it was at that moment, right? Um, but you know, at the end of the day, like we were... Uh, we could have bought that shoe and given it away and we still would have had, you know, a lot of value because we were giving away a $30,000 shoe. Um, so no necessary, no. Um, but it's definitely helped. 
And frankly, it's definitely also been been a lot of fun to be able to do those yeah, things. Yeah, I can imagine. I can. How much? How, how? What's your GMV? I mean, that's the magic number in marketplaces. Always like the uh, gross merchandise volume. I think the word is right. Um, how much do you do? Um, you know, I don't know um, when's the last time we released a, a, a public number of that, but um, you know, I, I think the the latest stats is a lifetime. I think we just crossed 2.5 billion in lifetime in, uh, in, in lifetime GMV in five years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we launched in in February of 2016, so it's been four, uh, uh, you know just a little over four years. Okay, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so there's no yearly GMV numbers. No, uh, we haven't we haven't released any any stats. We only do that at, at certain times. But um, but yeah, I mean, two and a half billion for for a lifetime, and obviously, um, you know, the business is you know gets you know bigger and bigger every every day week and year so that that's heavier on, on the more recent side and i mean the good thing for you is you have no inventory right i mean there's you just basically like just move the thing through yeah yeah no we also have much much smaller margins than if we were a retailer right if you're a retailer you might have 50 margins but you also have inventory risk so um so there's there's downside of that as well as you mentioned you know our our margins are, are you know in the single digits but but yeah but no inventory which is nice Any other brands or developments in the industry that you see coming? I mean, I noticed, for instance, this, I think it's a French brand, Veja, or that seems to like, you know, grow quite a bit here in Europe. Anything that you find interesting in, in your space that you think hasn't been noticed enough? Um, you know, you know, in the past, um, uh, you know, week or so, there's been all these uh, Paris Fashion Week online, mm -hmm. um, you know, events. Uh, I almost feel like now is a time where, Uh, we'd all be attuned to whatever the, the newest stuff is because everyone would be in Paris and, and, uh, and seeing all the brands there and almost feels that it's like, it's hard to know, um, you know, at our level and, and stock X and what we're selling, um, you know, it, it, it has to get to a level where there's actually a lot of transactions that are happening. So at the, the, the brand level, you start to see it much earlier, um, before it's even relevant on our marketplace. But, uh, so the short answer is, is no, I almost feel like the, the quarantine has, uh, has made it harder to see some of that, have some of that visibility. It's also, it's, it's such a shame for, uh, for the brands and the sneaker brands, you know, like, you know, I can count on one hand the number of times that, that I've really gotten dressed, you know, in the last, you know, four <laughs> months, right? Because okay. it's haven't left my house. Um, and it sucks. Like I, you know, I sit here in my sneaker closet where I can see all 400 of my shoes right now as we're talking. And, uh, you know, I've probably, I've probably worn, literally five of them since March, <laughs> which is, you know, sad. Sometimes I sit here, I'll just wear them sitting in my house because I, I miss wearing them. And, and I think that it goes the same for, for, for clothing and for fashion brands too. So hopefully uh, we get, we uh, all get back out there soon. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, in the end that, that's maybe even a business risk then. I mean, it, like, depending on how long that takes and like how much home office is going to remain after the, after the, after the pandemic, um, you know, maybe it, there's just less reason to dress in the future. Yeah, well, that that was our hypothesis, you know, when it, when all this happens. Um, obviously, the the economic side of it, but also, you know, if there's, you know, are people really going to be buying sneakers and clothing when you know you're not going out and getting dressed, or at least not nearly the, the same way that you used to? But the answer is yes, um, and the answer is yes, and and I still find myself doing it as well too. I guess you know it's it's hard to break that habit, but. Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I don't love sneakers any less because I'm not wearing them, but I just don't get to wear them as much. Yeah. All right. I mean, 
We would have loved to have you here in in in, in Europe or in Germany uh, yeah. for the event. Maybe next year, in case we can run an event here, which we certainly hope, um, we give you a reason to dress and and and, and try to like convince you to come over again. Or like, I would love, uh, yeah, yeah. I I miss I miss traveling a lot. I miss going out there and and um, and, and being a part of all these things in real life. So yeah. Well, if uh, if we're if the world's up and running. I'll be there. <laughs> all right. All right. Thank you for, for being on the podcast. Thank you for sharing all this and, and you know, uh, fascinating company. Good luck with the, you know, next couple of months, the company and um, who knows what this takes us and, and you in particular. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Josh. 